You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This morning, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we are going to ask that you turn there with us. Uh, If you don't have one with you, you can find a hard copy of the text under the seat around you. And... um, Also, if you don't own a Bible, then you can keep that one as a gift from us. So again, we're going to be in Jonah um, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. So when you get there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And if you did grab a Bible, it should be kind of in the 770s in that area. Last week, I I had made a comment about how I want you guys to be able to find Jonah. And then last week, the whole time people were reading, I'm like, where is it? It's like a one-page split. I know it's right there. (laughs) So if you grab one of those or you have kind of these ESV Bibles, it's in the 770 area. Okay? Um, and before we read God's word this morning, I just want to remind you that this is God's word. It's living and active. And so we're going to approach it um, as that this morning. And so we're going to start in verses four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to see each and every one of you. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and I'm so excited to be able to bring you God's word. I love the book of Jonah, um, and I particularly love this text. Call me masochist, but I love it. Uh, So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I would ask that you pray with me, uh, pray for me, as as we dive into God's word and look at what God would have for us today. So would you pray with me? Father God, you are good. There is no one good outside of you. There's no other place that we can run. So God, as we approach your word with reverence, as we approach your word with hope, would you still our hearts? Would you give us the joy that we long for each and every morning? Allow us to see it in your word that never changes. So God, while we're here, while we're listening to your word, would you fill our hearts? Would you give us the strength to move forward past today? And would you give us the peace that we can't find anywhere else? It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what's happened up, it's crucial 
right now to explain what's happened up to this point. Because and I decided to jump a little bit uh, back and go to verse 4 instead of just starting in verse 5 because I felt like it was really important uh, for if you haven't been here or haven't been a part of this series, uh, for you to know what's going on. So what's happened up to this point, I'll give you the cliff note version. In fact, even less than that bullet point version. At this point, Jonah was given a call from God. He ran from God, decided, no, I'm not going to Nineveh, and we'll explain that in a minute. Instead, he runs to a city called Tarshish, and he gets on a boat. Things don't go very well because God is relentless, and God pursues us. God pursues his people and finds Jonah and then brings him into, throws him out into the sea to be able to get him back to where God was calling him to go. Uh, a fish swallows him, and in that fish, in the belly of the fish, Jonah realizes not only who he was, but who God was. And he comes to, the, comes to this realization that he cannot possibly move forward another step of his life without first following the word of God. And everything that he needs to do at that moment is reorienting his life, mind, and heart around God. And so an incredible moment between him and the Lord and a realization from Jonah take place inside the belly of the fish and the fish spits him up where else except the trajectory to go to Nineveh. Now that's no, that's, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but that's no small feat. It's about 500 miles from where he gets spit up on the shore to Nineveh. So he's got a really long journey ahead of him. But nonetheless, he's back on his journey. He's realigned with God's will and he goes to Nineveh and here we are. And so now, we need to realize, and what Jonah is starting to realize, is that we are swept, just like Jonah, we are swept into God's story. That what we see today, not only in the Bible, but in our everyday life, is not our story. It is God's story, and we are a part of it. We are a part of God's redemptive plan in history. We are a part of his story. Jonah tried to live his life the opposite way, where he tried to sweep God into his story. And a lot of that is because um, during this time when uh, King Jeroboam II was in rule over Israel, was the king of Israel, there was a great time of peace. And there's something about peace that peace and comfort that brings a, a sort of settledness to our life, a contentment. I don't want to disrupt what's going on here. And you see, that's what, that's what happened to Jonah. Jonah was content. He was happy. Things were peaceful. And then God had to come in and disrupt the whole thing. And Jonah is swept into God's story. And God, at the end of the day, is, wants to remind Jonah that there's no other place that he can go to for peace. He can't go to a, to a time of basically non-war with Israel. Just because there's no war happening doesn't mean that there's peace. Just because ceasefire is taking place doesn't mean that there's peace. What we need to be reminded of and what Jonah had to be reminded of is that at our orientation in life has nothing to do with the circumstances we find ourselves in, but our orientation in life should be centered around what our relationship with God is like. And Jonah had to be reminded that at the end of the day, he was, not re, he was not orienting his life around God, and God was going to remind him that there is punishment for that. And he certainly wasn't punishing Jonah, but at the end of the day, he cannot forget God's wrath because without God's wrath, there's not salvation. Michael Horton said it this way, where God's wrath is no longer a problem, Christ's cross is no longer a solution. Jonah had to be reminded that in order for 
in order for him to move forward and accomplish what God would have for him, God had to build his own story inside of Jonah. So the message that we're about to read that Jonah is bringing to Nineveh, God first started that inside of Jonah. Jonah had to come to this realization that he had to repent for not living his life according to God's word, for not aligning his life with God's direction. He had to, he had to reckon with that. And that's what we see happen in the fish. And so when he gets here, Jonah has a full heart, a full heart of it. the story of God, the story of redemption. He gets a second chance, just like God is going to give to Nineveh. He gets a second chance to do what God has asked him to do. And so he comes to Nineveh with a full heart. Jonah had to be reconciled to God himself. And oftentimes, before we become ministers of reconciliation, like the Bible calls us to, we must also be brought back to the Lord. Now, we need to pay attention here and know that what we're about to read, God didn't need Jonah. I mean, I think we could all agree that if God wanted to, he could have just either burned Nineveh to the ground or spoken to the king himself and the same thing take place. He could have done this, but he didn't. God chose to sweep Jonah into his story to accomplish his will and accomplish his plan because God is not just using us transactionally, but we are his children and we are being reconciled to him at the same time. So in the same way that we are being reconciled, he is simultaneously using us to be ministers of reconciliation. All right, let's get into it. Verse number four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse number five, and this is amazing. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, Jonah didn't just go into any city. He went into the largest city. He went into Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And he didn't just go into a large city, but it went into an evil city. And we learned that in chapter one. And this, Nineveh was, was known for promiscuity, was known for ch- child sacrifice, and even more than that, they took accolades and joy in being known for murder. If you go and read, now this is the book of Nahum, and so it's a little bit further ahead, about 80 years ahead of this, of this time, but this is a time where the, the city of Nineveh had turned back to their old ways after 80 years, after several generations. But what you learn is the true root of their sin, and when Nahum is talking, giving the word of the Lord to the people of Nineveh, he, he describes it as bodies being stacked in the city because they took such joy in murder. It's, it's, what they, it's what they wanted to say they were good at. Some of us like to say we're good at football. Nineveh, murder. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a different story with Nineveh. So it wasn't just a large city. It was an evil city. Now, Jonah also did not have to say much. In the, in the Hebrew language, this is only five words. Five words. That he, and it's not like this, like, hey, God loves you. Be encouraged. No, it's in, in 40 days, this is going to burn to the ground. Five words. That's all he had to speak. But that's important because when the word of God is present, it doesn't matter how many words there are. When the word of God is present, it changes people and circumstances every time. And this is because the Bible doesn't merely contain the word of God. The Bible doesn't need to be added to to make it the word of God. And it certainly doesn't need anything to be removed in order to become the word of God. It is the word of God. It is the very words of God himself to us, his people. 
It's everlasting. It's unchanging. It's the only perfect thing here on earth. It doesn't change with the ebb and flow of culture. Our, it doesn't change with our preferences. And it doesn't matter who gets on TV or on the internet and writes a blog or has a news, newscast. It doesn't matter what they say. The word of God will never change. It is everlasting and perfect. And every time that it enters into our world and our vicinity, we change or at least we're we're faced with a fork in the road to change. Lauren alluded to it, but Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God being present, it doesn't matter how many words those are. It changes us. It forms us. It shapes us. And so anytime the word of God is brought before us, whether in, the, whether in preach form, written form, or whether you're listening to it on audible, you are being reckoned with the God of the universe speaking to you. And so... As a, as a moment here, if there's, if there's not an area of your life where you are able to submit underneath God's word, not stand above it, but submit underneath it and allow it to shape you, then you're missing out on God's effective change in your, in your life. We have, to, we have to find room and make room for God's word to shape us, to mold us, to transform us into his image. Because there's no other word that's more powerful. There's no king, no person, no movement that's more powerful than the word of God. And just like Nineveh in our culture, we have tried to solve the problem with sin apart from the word of God. We've tried to solve the problem by, you name it, all kinds of different categories, whether it's through education. We're far more smarter, far more intelligent than we ever have been. It's never solved the problem of sin. Technologically, we're more technologically advanced than we ever have been, and the, and the problem of sin is not solved. Medically, we're far more advanced in the medical field, and, and sickness and disease still exist. Death still happens because it doesn't solve the problem of sin. It is not powerful enough to change things. It is not powerful enough to affect the soul. The word of God is. In fact, the word of God is so powerful that it changed a city, an entire city. Nineveh was incredibly large. It took three days just to walk across it. Three days. I mean, that's bigger than any city here that we know in in the United States. Three days, three full days to walk across. And the people of Nineveh heard the word of God and they did what? They believed it. They believed God, and this sparked arguably the greatest revival ever. And this wasn't just an acknowledgement of God like the fishermen at the beginning of the story. The beginning of Jonah, you see Jonah get on the boat, and these fishermen ask him who his God is, who he serves, and he tells them, and they acknowledge that God exists. And they ask him, how could you do this? How could you disobey this God, and it causes problems for us, the God of the heavens and 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 the earth? How could you do that? They acknowledge that that God exists, but there was no real repentance on their, on their side. There, there was no turning. There was no, I, I'm going to be obedient to this God like you see here in Nineveh. 
They didn't believe him. They just acknowledged him. But here it's different. They believed God. They believed and they turned. And this is the primary issue that we are faced with in our current culture, in this current cultural moment we have today. It's not elected officials and if we get the right one in place, everything will be okay. It's not having the right job and everything will be okay. It's not going to the right media outlets to make sure we get the correct information. It's not ethical positions. It's belief or non-belief. That's the issue that we're faced with today. Just like with Nineveh, it was belief or non-belief. Leonard Radmahill says this about revival. He says, in revival, God is not concerned about filling empty churches. In other words, he's not concerned with simply making the aesthetics look good. He's not concerned with making sure you are morally upright, simply, at least. He's not concerned with making sure that you look good in front of other people. God is not concerned about filling empty churches. He is concerned about filling empty hearts. God is in the business of changing hearts. He want, I mean, if you just look throughout the Bible, the people that follow God that he decides to use are far from perfect. They're far from aesthetically pleasing. I mean, Peter was likely gross, if we had to be honest. I mean, smelled like fish all day and was poor. I mean, he was a, a disgusting human and looked down upon him, was likely not smart at all and couldn't read. And God used him to usher in the church. God does not look to the outside. He's looking to the heart. And God is more often than not only considered and concerned with that. He wants to change the heart. He's in the business of filling hearts that are empty. John chapter 6, verses 28 through 9 reaffirms this. When his disciples look to him and they're, and they're trying to figure out what do I need to do? What thing do I need to accomplish in order to be doing the works of God? What does this look like? And Jesus responds by saying, then they said to him, what must we, be, we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he has sent. And this is the call for us. This was the call for Jonah at the beginning of the story for him to believe in. And this was the call, the call in the message that Jonah gave to Nineveh and that we are faced with today, which is the call is not to simply increase our output of good works, but to return and believe in a good God who's rescued us. This is the message that we're faced with today. This is the message that Nineveh was faced with also. Let's keep going. Verse number five. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So everyone, rich and poor. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now, before I keep reading, I want you to know the significance of that. That is incredible. Because likely what we're looking at here is he's the, he's the king inside of the capital of Assyria. So this is likely the king of Assyria we're talking about, not just the king of Nineveh. This was a king who held himself in high revere, high regard, and to remove your robe was a big deal. It's you saying, I'm just like everyone else. The robe and the throne are what made him significant. And so to take off the robe and to step down from the throne and put on sackcloth and ashes, just like all of the poor people, the least of them, and the great of them. 
He said, I'm equal. In other words, I am just right now at the mercy of God as everyone else. It's incredible that this happens. And it only reaffirms what I said a minute ago, which is the word of God is more powerful than any king or any nation. It's more powerful than any elected official. It's more powerful than any movement. The word of God, when we are faced with it, is able to change anything, everyone, in every nation in an instant. And that should give us hope. And I want to get too far ahead of myself, but that should give us hope for our current state. It should give us hope for our current nation that there's never a moment where it can get too far gone. God can change that in an instant. He can change anything that we're faced with. Let's keep reading. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. I, I, I laughed at this the first time I read it because I'm like, man, what did the cows do? Come on. Like, the cows aren't going to eat. They're not going to know. Um, let, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so what you have here is that the word of God goes forward, regeneration in the hearts of the people take place. In other words, they, become, they are now aware of the holiness of God. They are aware of their sinfulness in light of that holiness. Regeneration in the hearts of the king and his nobles and his people all take place. And then what follows that is repentance. And so we need to remember that repentance doesn't cause salvation. Repentance is a fruit of salvation. That when regeneration takes place in the heart of a believer, what follows that is repentance. When you become aware of your sin in light of God's holiness, you have no other choice to, you, well, I guess you do, to either say, okay, well, that doesn't matter, which means regeneration didn't happen in the first place, or, or you turn and repent to a holy God. And you not only celebrate, you not, you not only repent of the works that you have done and the sin that you have, but you celebrate the mercy of God and joy. And what follows repentance and what we see here in this text is faith and obedience. Notice that the revival that took place began with repentance. And almost every time that there's any kind of revival or resurgence in our soul to love God deeply, it always begins with repentance. Where repentance is not there, life does not take place. Where death is not present, life cannot follow. The reason why we can be alive in Christ is because we have to die to ourselves. I mean, if you, all you have to do is follow the story arc of any, any novel or movie that's ever been written, it Anything that you watch at all, the only way for life to take place for, to celebrate the end of the movie is for someone to lay down their own life, to die to their own principles, die to their own morals. At the end of the day, what you have to do is lay down yourself for the sake of another. And that's what, that's what happens with repentance. That's what happens with regeneration. We die to ourselves in order to walk in faith, obedience, and life in Christ. Now, there's, a, there's some common things that happen in revival, not just in the soul, but when you see it in a city. And when you look across the span of history, 
there are three things that are always present. There's always a fierce commitment to prayer, which you see here. You see them cry mightily out to God. There's a return to the word of God. You see this all throughout the Bible that anytime any kind of movement takes place or a city is changed or a family is changed, it's because the word of God has come to bear on their souls. And then there's an outpouring of God's spirit that regenerates the heart of man and turns him back to the Lord. And there's another thing that we learn here in this text, and that's that there's not a single, and and I kind of laughed about it a second ago with, you know, the cattle and the beasts and the herds and the flock. There's not a single thing that doesn't belong to the Lord. That when we follow Christ and we give our hearts to him and give our lives to him, he gets everything. To, in order to walk in obedience, we have to be willing to give God all of us, not just part of us, not 99% of us, 100% of us. In the New Testament, this word for repentance is metanoia. It's a, a changing of the mind, a redirection. In other words, it's a reorientation. Everything that you have now looks, sounds, and feels different. Everything is given back to the Lord. You were once headed this way to destruction and a complete 180 degree turn the other way, you are now headed towards God. And he has everything and he owns everything. And so every thought that you have, every direction of life that you take, all goes through the filter of what would God have for me? Okay. Now, and I guess I'll say this before we move forward. For those of you that maybe are wrestling with this idea of what repentance looks like and what this reorientation looks like for you to follow God faithfully in obedience, I'll say this as someone who's walked through it myself, there is joy on the other side of repentance. I know it doesn't feel like it, and I know that laying things before the Lord can be scary, can be terrifying, because you don't know what's on the other side of it, but I can tell you there's joy. That if God is calling you to repent of something and to give, to give something back to him that you have tried to take for yourself, he's doing that because that is the best thing for you. God, in his infinite wisdom, knows what is best for us far more than we do, even if it doesn't seem practical in our own life. This reorientation of our life means that ultimately God has the best in mind for us. And so where we need to lay down our lives, regardless of what that means for us, there's joy on the other side of it. Verse number nine. And the king said, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king was unsure of what God would do. On the one hand, he's aware of the fact that they deserve to be punished. And on the other hand, he's also aware that God is patient because up until this moment, they've survived. So he's wrestling with these two different thoughts. And I can't help but think that there's, that's also a wrestling that we have, that our interaction with God is difficult, is difficult at times. That sometimes we wrestle with the idea of, okay, well, if I, if I don't repent, God's going to punish me right now. Or I can't repent. I can't go to God because of the sin that I have. I can't read, read God's word. I can't read God's word. I haven't been in it in months. I can't pray. I haven't talked to him in months. I, can't, I mean, I can't be the only one that's had those thoughts before. 
the enemy has a way of separating us, even separating us from God, even in the moments where we're inclined to go to him. And that sometimes his words and his voice can be louder. Sometimes his voice can sound right and true because the enemy that we have is deceitful and he takes what's true and he bends it a little bit, just a little bit. Enough though. He can even take something and it'd be 99% true, but that 1% is separating separating you and God. And so this reorientation of life is a reminder that God is patient, that his his wick of anger burns slowly. And God is calling you back to him and that you don't have to question or wrestle with the thought that this king did. This king is on a side of history that we are not. We stand on the other side of the risen Christ. We can be sure. Where the Ninevite king finds no rest, we can be sure of God's grace to us in Christ. When we commit our lives to Christ, our salvation that we have in him is sure. Just like God's word, it is unfading, never failing. It is always present. When salvation takes place in the heart, when true salvation takes place, you can be sure and find your rest in Christ. You don't have to wonder. I, I talk often with uh, members of the congregation and even some of my family members that aren't believers, and we talk about this, uh, this, uh, this topic of identity, if you will, this unsure nature of salvation at times. And I tell them that, you know, obviously if they're family, they know that, you know, we have two children, Caleb and Lauren. My son is eight years old. My daughter is six. My son right now could come to me and he could say the most terrible words in the world, the ones that I would hate to hear. Dad, I hate you. I never want to be around you. Don't come near me. I'm leaving. And he could leave and I could never talk to him again. But nothing changes the fact that he is my son. It doesn't matter what he said to me. It doesn't matter how far he goes. It doesn't matter what happens. His sonship is always sure. And he could come back to me, and I would receive him in open arms. And that is God's picture for us if you are a believer. If you are a Christian, your sonship or daughterhood I don't know what to say there. Um, I was going to say daughtership, but I was just like, that doesn't sound right. That is sure. You no longer bear your name. You bear the name of Christ, and that is unfading. And this picture of Jonah that we see is really meant to point us to a greater Savior, and that Jesus is the greater Jonah. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verses verses 38 through 41. It says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks 
for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah has three day, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jonah is meant to be a type and a shadow pointing back to us. Jesus is the, is the greater Jonah in, in a myriad of ways. Where Jonah ran from God, Jesus obeyed his every word. Where Jonah went to Nineveh unwillingly, Jesus condescended to us in joy. Where Jonah sacrificed himself to save the life of a few fishermen, Jesus sacrificed himself to save the world. Where Jonah arose from the fish after three days, Jesus arose from the grave after three days. Where Jonah preached a few words for God, uh, Jesus was the word of God. Where Jonah saw a king step down from his earthly throne, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords who stepped down from his own heavenly throne. Where Jonah saw one nation bow before God, every knee from every nation will bow before Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And when God says something is sure for us, it is sure. In verse number 10, and I'll, I'll close with this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Brothers and sisters, we don't serve a vindictive God. We don't serve a God who's merely out to prove a point. He's not petty. We serve a God that loves his children. We serve a God that is gracious. We serve a king whose wick of anger burns slowly. He is not like a man that is out to impress. He's the God of the universe that deeply loves each and every one of us. And his main and primary goal, yes, is his own glory but is also to redeem man and draw him back to himself. And so you see that purpose here, that God didn't change his mind, but what did happen is God used this story, swept Jonah into his own story to not only change Jonah, but to change a city, to change a nation. Because God is accomplishing his story in us and through us that we have both a message to believe and a message to proclaim. And just like Jonah, this is the message that we get to carry to a broken world. That in the same way Jonah was swept into God's story and God used what was going on in his life to reconcile him back to, back to himself, he then used that story to accomplish and advance his kingdom. In the same way, we can have hope for our city we can have hope for our nation because God is drawing a people, you and I, to himself. And he's drawing us to himself with a sure salvation, one that we can rest freely in, one that we can walk freely in, where we can approach the king of the universe with confidence, as Hebrews tells us. He's doing that and drawing people to himself and then turning around and sending us into the Nineveh of our world, sending us into a nation that's broken to tell them a message that is sure, a message that is true, that if, if they would just repent, that God would change in an instant.
If you stand, I'll pray for us. Father God, we, we thank you so much that we don't have to question who you are. We don't have to question where we stand, but that we can, we can rest confidently and freely before you. And so God, for, the, for those of us who are anxious, are broken, maybe even harboring sin in our hearts, Would you bring us to a place of repentance? Help us to see your holiness and our sin in light of it. Help us to reorient our lives just like the people of Nineveh. To turn from our our own ways and direct our gaze towards you. Direct our gaze to you, the God of the universe, the king that loves us, the, the sure father that stands above us. God, we're grateful that you made a way through your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would send your spirit to empower us, strengthen us, and encourage us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.